Hey guys, before we start, check out this podcast by our friend Brandon Hall at Music City 911. Brandon has been a 911 dispatcher for over 20 years. His podcast examines real 911 calls answered by real 911 dispatchers. You won't be disappointed. Here's his trailer. The world of 911 emergency dispatching is brutally diverse. One minute you can be talking with someone about parking violations. Uh, what's the process we are to take to have people told? Because it's actually delaying the mail. And then all hell can break loose. Then the rest of the day is crazy. We could have murders. Hill County 911, what's your emergency? I just killed my children. Home invasions. He's in my house. He's in my house. I shot him. You shot him? He was coming up towards me and I shot him. Natural disasters. Even bombings. My show, Music City 901, will put you in the dispatcher's chair, put you ear to ear with the callers and responders, and keep you on edge from start to finish. I hope to both educate and entertain as I'm a 911 dispatcher with over 20 years experience. And just like dispatching, every episode is different from the last. Music City 911. Real 911 calls, real 911 dispatchers. Available to listen to on any podcast app. Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so excited to have you with us today. We are, and we hope you're all getting into the Christmas spirit. I've been so impressed this week that so many people have been so kind. It hasn't quite reached that stage where everybody is crazy and filled with road rage looking for that last minute gift yet. <laughs> that lovely Christmas panic a yeah. few days before. <laughs> yeah. We're just in the beginning where everyone's being extra kind. It's true. And that is why I like to get my shopping done as early as I possibly can, because I hate that last minute hustle and bustle and rush and just the anxiety that comes along with that. So when I was in university, my best friend and I, we would purposely leave our Christmas shopping until December 23rd. And then we would make this great big trip of going to the malls on December 23rd. Uh, No, thank you. It's a little bit different when you're a university student and you don't actually have a huge list of must-haves for those special people in your lives. That's true. I think it definitely changes when you're a mom. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're in charge of buying all the gifts for your house. Exactly. But I've just been so impressed with how kind people have been lately. Me too. And now that you say that, I actually just had the neatest experience. I was out with a friend. We met for dinner and we decided to meet at Montana's restaurant. So delicious. It is so good. They're deep fried pickles. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You will win me over with the deep fried pickles 10 out of 10 times. (laughs) You are all about deep fried pickles. I really am. (laughs) But anyways, we were there. We sat actually at the restaurant for like five hours chatting, catching up, 
And all of a sudden, the waitress comes up to us and she's like, just so you guys know, your bill has been paid for. What? Seriously. And we were just like that same response. What? And we had been there long enough that three different sets of people had come and gone in the booth across from us. And it turned out that the middle couple that had been there was a dad and his daughter. She looked like maybe around nine, ten years old. They had decided to pay for our meal. And they had left before the waitress told us, so we couldn't even thank them. But we were both just so taken aback and so appreciative of that random act of kindness. So what did you do that was got you noticed? Nothing. We hadn't even like chatted with them or anything. We had noticed that they were sitting there because they were right across from us. But the waitress had said that on the little girl's birthday, someone had paid for their family's meal and she just really wanted to pay it forward. Oh, that is so sweet. It is. So if that random dad or his daughter are listening to us, thank you so much because we didn't get the chance to be able to say thank you. And that is really a true act of kindness when you're not doing it to get the recognition or the thanks. It's just so incredible when people do that. And at this time of year, you see that more often. Yeah, we were just so touched by that act of kindness. That is really kind. But today, our case is the opposite of anything kind. Oh, no. Because today we're going to talk about a group of girls, some drama, and the dirtbags that emerged when they formed a pack of mean animals bent on hunting another little girl. No way. Mm -hmm. Mean girls are the worst. They were just obsessed with jealousy and revenge. Oh, man. This is going to be a heartbreaking case, isn't it? It is. Because the victim was only 12. So be warned, this one might pull on your heartstrings a little bit. Oh, man. Shanda Renee Scher was born on June 6, 1979 in Pineville, Kentucky. When she was still little, her parents, Stephen Scher and Jacqueline Vaught, got divorced. Things just weren't working out. But Shonda was able to continue a relationship with both of her parents. She was close with her father and her stepmother, Sharon, and she was best friends with her mom and got along with her older sister, Paige, just beautifully. When her mom's second marriage failed, the family moved to New Albany, Indiana in June of 1991, and at the age of 12, she was enrolled at Hazelwood Middle School. Prior to the move, Shonda was a youth that loved life. She made friends easily and excelled at sports. She was on the cheerleading squad and played volleyball and softball. And just to prove that she wasn't all tomboy, she loved fashion and had the best hair ever. Aw, she sounds amazing. I should show you a picture. She had that kind of like late 80s, early 90s hairstyle that was all volume really? and amazing. <laughs> yes. Okay, hang on, listeners. I got to look. <laughs> okay, I looked. <laughs> Melissa is not joking. And I have to say, I think I rocked that hairstyle at one point in time in my life. I never had that volume to rock that. Oh, yeah. I had a spiral perm at one point in time, and I mastered the art of those flip-up bangs. Nice. I rocked it. I just thought her school photos were, like, so iconic for that time. And her smile is so genuine. Mm -hmm. Like, she looks like a total sweetheart. She just looks so bubbly and full of life. And that's what her parents described her being like. With all this going on for her, you would think that starting a new school would have been an easy thing for her. But for the middle grader, it just wasn't. Shonda had a hard time fitting into the school and even got into a fight at the beginning of the school year. And this fight was pretty intense. It landed her and another girl, Amanda Havron, in detention for a week. Oh, wow. And that just seems out of character for her. I think Shonda was just really struggling to fit into this new school. Mm -hmm. Amanda was three years older than her and while they spent time in detention together they actually ended up bonding over their mutual love of sports oh that's hilarious so they were 
enemies, and then they became quick friends. And that friendship then developed into a relationship. Shonda reportedly looked more like a 16-year-old girl than a 12-year-old girl. And for Amanda being three years older, it didn't seem like a big deal that Shonda was only 12 at the time. Right. That is a big age gap, 12 and 16. Yeah, it is. It's not so bad if they're just friends, but when they're actually getting into like a romantic kind of relationship, it's really different. Like if that was my daughter at 12 dating someone who was 16, that would raise a few of my eyebrows. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. In October, Amanda and Shanda went to the school dance together. Much to the dismay of Amanda's past girlfriend, Melinda, Amanda and Shanda were appearing as a couple. Amanda and Melinda had been in and out of a teenage romance for about a year previous to this dance happening. And Melinda was furious about Shanda stepping in on her territory. She was extremely jealous and threatened both Amanda and Shanda. The altercation almost came to blows with Melinda, who was 16 at the time, wanting to physically fight the much younger Shanda. Ooh, she was the jilted ex. Mm -hmm. Amanda stepped in on Shanda's behalf, though, and this made Melinda even more upset. And Melinda wasn't the only one upset with Shanda's newfound relationship. Her parents were not impressed at all either. Her mom was noticing changes in Shanda's behaviors. Her once bubbly preteen was now sullen and withdrawn. She was getting into trouble at school, and she no longer enjoyed the things that she once had. She cared very little about her appearance or her clothes, and even failed phys ed at school. Oh, wow. That would be a huge red flag as a mom. Mm -hmm. So this complete turnaround in just a couple of months. Yeah. When Jackie found love notes between Amanda and Shanda, she feared the relationship had turned sexual and coercive, and she feared that her daughter was being manipulated by this much older girl, and that was the reason that she gave for all these behavioral changes that she was seeing in Shanda. Well, I would be unsettled if I thought my 12-year-old was having a sexual relationship in school. Mm -hmm. Jacqueline forbade her daughter from seeing Amanda, and when that didn't work, she actually moved Shanda to a different school, taking her to Our Lady of Perpetual Help Catholic School. Oh, wow. And this move occurred at the end of November, all to get her away from Amanda's influence. Do you think it was because she was dating someone older or because she was dating a girl? Because sometimes at that time, it wasn't as accepted to have a same-sex relationship. And so that's why it was like, Kate, you're going to Catholic school. The early 90s were not as accepting as today of different sexual orientations and identities. And when first reading about this case, I'll admit that that's what I was thinking too, that it was a purposeful move to the Catholic school as a result of being uncomfortable with her daughter exploring a lesbian relationship. Okay. I thought the same as you. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. But after watching countless interviews, it seems her protectiveness and fear came from the coercive type of nature of the relationship. In several letters that were found, Shanda expressed her want to continue just as friends, but feared losing the one friendship that she had developed in this school. Oh. And so, while I first thought that it may have been just because of this lesbian relationship, Jackie was more fearful of the coerciveness of the relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Especially if she knows that her daughter's wanting to get out of that relationship. Yeah. Her mother felt that Shanda had been ashamed of the sexual experience that she had had with Amanda, and that was why she had become ashamed of her body, refusing to change in gym class in front of other girls. And that's actually the reason she failed gym is because she refused to get changed. Oh, okay. Yeah, it seems like there's a whole lot more to unpack there. Mm -hmm. And after moving schools, things seemed to improve for Shanda. Her grades started to improve. And she started trying out for sports teams again. So it seems like her mom had the right idea. Okay. 
But throughout this time, Amanda continued to call and write letters to Shanda. She still wanted the relationship to continue, even though Shanda had gone to a new school. Amanda's continued feelings towards Shanda made Melinda feel even more rejected. Shanda wasn't even around. And she was still at the same school as Amanda. Yet Amanda was still choosing this 12-year-old over her. Yeah, Melinda was probably like, okay, good, she's gone. Now I can get her back. Mm -hmm. Melinda became more and more vocal about her dislike of the situation, telling lots of people about it. Melinda was a 16-year-old that had lived in New Albany her whole life in the dysfunctional home of Marjorie and Larry Loveless, a very adequate name for the relationship in that family. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Melinda's father, Larry, was a drafted Vietnam veteran. He was emotionally scarred by his time spent serving. He held down various jobs after serving in the military, working for the Southern Railway or working as a probationary officer in the New Albany Police Department and even as a mail carrier. At all of these jobs, he didn't have the greatest track record. He had assaulted a man as an officer. He delivered very little mail while being a mail carrier. Instead, he just kind of stashed it at home. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like the equivalent of a little kid with a flyer route, like dumping the flyers in the garbage can. Yeah, only this was people's mail. Yeah, that's important stuff. Yeah. That's got to be a criminal offense. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, that's like basically stealing someone's mail. Mm -hmm. But he just didn't want to do the job. So he's lazy. Uh-huh. Unmotivated. Yep. Because of his lack of reliable employment, the family was only well provided for when Marjorie started to work intermittently after 1974. But being provided for was not something Melinda and her siblings could rely on. Her father would often spend all the family's money on things just for himself, leaving his daughters to go hungry. What? Mm -hmm. What a dirtbag. Yeah. Oh, it's going to get worse. Just wait. Between the ages of five and seven, Melinda's parents joined the Baptist church. And this is when Larry tried on the hat of a marriage counselor and a lay preacher. He was going to become a marriage counselor? He did become a marriage counselor in the church. He became obsessed with religion. During this time, he actually sent Melinda away with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism in a hotel room. And few know what really happened in that hotel room during that exorcism. Get out. Mm -hmm. Handed his daughter over to a 50-year-old man. So this feels like he's a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. Yeah. Like this does not fit. No, not at all. And it wouldn't last. It would soon fade after a few years. There were too many rules for Larry. Melinda's parents had an unusual and very abusive sex life. They had what sounds like was an open relationship, which was enforced and really only enjoyed by Larry. After his dabbling in religion, Larry's behavior at home was even more bizarre and deplorable. So he can step out on his wife, but she can't step out on him. And not just step out, but bring in. Oh, yeah. Gross. He's terrible. Mm-hmm. Larry was violent and encouraged swinging and orgies, and he would force his wife to take part in them. Then, after forcing her to take part, he would fly into jealous rages and beat her for it. What? Larry also enjoyed dressing up in his wife and his daughter's undergarments and wearing their makeup. And when he wasn't wearing their clothes, he was embarrassing them by smelling their underwear in front of other people. Are you serious? He was just bizarre. And such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words to describe him. Yeah. What a low-life human. Melinda's mother would openly talk about suicide with her daughter's present and made several different attempts to take her own life. Oh. 
once after Larry shared her with his work friends. It was her daughters that found her unconscious among family photos during this one attempt. Oh, man. If watching their mother being physically and sexually abused wasn't enough, Melinda's sisters and cousin Teddy were all molested by Larry. He made them strip naked and he would tie them together and sodomize them each in turn. (gasps) My goodness. Yeah. During one instance of sexual abuse, Larry used a pistol to rape a young girl. That is so despicable. He's an absolute dirtbag. Yeah. Melinda was a little reluctant to admit that this had ever happened to her, but several people testified that they had seen Larry fondle Melinda even when she was an infant and that she slept in his bed with him until she was 14 years old. How can people see him doing stuff like this and nobody steps in? It was the culture at the time. That always blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Because how many years of this torture and abuse could have been stopped? If someone had reached in to help her mom get herself and her daughters out of this horrific abusive situation. Mm -hmm. In 1990, it all kind of came to a head when Melinda was 14. Marjorie caught her husband spying on her daughters getting changed. And so up until this point, it sounds like her mom didn't have an understanding of what was happening to her girls. She kind of put up with it because it was happening to just her. But when she became aware that he was doing this to her girls and saw him watching them, she attacked him with a knife and then later tried to commit suicide. This instance would mark the last of their marriage. The two would divorce and a short time later, Larry would just leave and start a new life with another woman with little thought of the family he left behind. Good riddance. That's what I wrote. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all thinking good riddance to this dirtbag, though. Those weren't Melinda's sentiments. She was very hurt by her father's abandonment. Melinda had a very skewed version of what a loving relationship looked like. Oh, if he's been fondling her since she was a baby, she would. This is all that she's ever known. Mm -hmm. But all of this stuff that you're telling me... No wonder she's hyper-focused on her relationship with Amanda. Yeah. You can see why she's holding on to that relationship for dear life and why she's kind of obsessive about it. Yeah. After her dad left, Melinda was floundering. She had never really excelled at school. With her home life, that isn't a big surprise. She had to repeat a grade and got into frequent fights. And she also struggled with depression, the same as her mom. At the age of 14... About the same time that her mom had found a new love interest, Melinda was developing her own relationship with Amanda, which started in March of 1991. The girls were both openly lesbian, not an embraced orientation at the time. They bonded over their shared struggle of coming out in a small town in 1990. With the betrayal of her father fresh, she clung on to her newfound relationship with Amanda. Melinda saw Amanda as her one constant. Oh, I can totally see that. At least until Amanda became infatuated in the fall of 1991 with Shanda, the 12-year-old who seemed to have it all. Looks, grades, athletic ability, and even though her parents were divorced, a dad that stuck around and cared about her. And now Shanda had Amanda's attention too. So it sounds like Melinda is projecting all of her hurt and past trauma onto Shanda. That's what's going to happen. Oh, man. This is totally a recipe for disaster. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she has everything that Melinda's never had. Yeah. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. And how sad. Because Melinda's a victim in this too. Up until this point. Hold on to that thought. You might change your mind. 
Remember how I said that it wasn't just one mean girl, but there were several. Oh, no. How many more names am I going to have to remember? Listeners, get a pen. (laughs) So in November of 1991, Belinda was heartbroken and looking for a new friend. She met a girl named Lori through another friend. These two girls developed a bond through their shared experiences with depression and female attraction. Mary Lorene Tackick, who went by Lori, was born on October 5th, 1974 in Madison, Indiana. Her father was an ex-con who worked in the local factory. Her mother, Peggy Tackick, ruled their house with an iron fist and was a deeply religious person. She demanded her family follow her fundamentalist Pentecostal views. Lori, as a child, was frequently teased for her dresses that she was made to wear and for her mother's religious zeal. Oh, were they like Little House on the Prairie kind of dresses? Yep. Okay. When she acted out against the strict rules at home or tried to get away with changing into pants when she got to school, there were always consequences. One disobedience led to her mother attempting to strangle her and resulted in a parenting agreement being ordered by the courts. What? Mm Mm-hmm. What is happening to all these parents in the 90s? Oh my goodness. It's a rough time. Lori's parents had agreed to unannounced visits from social workers who would assess for any signs of abuse. Unfortunately, the social workers that visited didn't pick up on the fact that Lori was frequently slapped and choked by her mother and that she had been sexually assaulted twice in her young life. Once at age five by a cousin and once when she was older by a teenage boy when they were getting high off of glue. Substance abuse was also a way that Lori fought against her mother's reign and used it as an escape for her troubled childhood. Yeah, no kidding. How terrible. And that would just totally destroy her sense of trust for anybody. Mm -hmm. And it made her very angry. The abuse her mother inflicted did little to curb what her mother viewed as Lori's rebellious nature. If anything, it fanned the flames. Lori delved into a fascination with the occult after her 15th birthday something she knew her mother would not approve of. Oh, man. She claimed she knew how to cast ruins to impress friends, and she claimed that she was possessed by a spirit of Deanna the Vampire and even drank blood to prove it. Oh, my goodness. She had a belief that she was destined to kill someone. Oh. Lori liked to play with the Ouija board with her friend Hope. When Peggy learned about this, she became enraged at Hope's father for providing one for the girls and letting it be used in his house. Peggy stormed into Lori's friend's house and demanded that the board be burnt and that the whole house be exercised. Yeah. I've told you guys before, you don't mess around with a Ouija board. I still can't get over that they sell it at Toys R Us. Like, it is so bizarre to me. Like, that blows my mind. It's a toy. But it's not. (laughs) Well, whether you believe in it or not, Hope's parents actually went along with this Because Peggy was so out of control. (laughs) Yeah, like, okay, weirdo lady, like, we'll burn the board. Yeah, and had their house exercised. (laughs) Really? Yes. But she couldn't just sage it? Or is that part of the exorcism of a house? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. And it wasn't because they had any belief that the Ouija board was anything more than a toy, but they just had to get away for Peggy to leave them alone. Just to appease her. Mm -hmm. To de-escalate the situation. Sometimes it's not worth the fight. That's right. But that's how fanatical she was. Wow. And a good old exorcism doesn't hurt anybody, I guess. (laughs) Lori's tumultuous life led to many mental health problems. As a way to cope with what was going on in her life, Lori began the practice of self-mutilation as a way to kind of let out that constant stress that she was always feeling. Oh, that is so sad. Mm -hmm. And that's so prevalent even today. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, they found a whole little group of girls that practiced that same thing. When her parents discovered this behavior, they checked her into a hospital on the 19th of March in 1991. After a brief evaluation, Lori was released into her parents' care, and only two days later was cutting her wrist with her girlfriend, Tony. This time, she was admitted to the psychiatric ward and was diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder. Lori claimed at this time that she had had hallucinations since her early childhood. Less than a month later, she was released again into her parents' care. So there's a lot going on with Lori. That's really sad. It's really heartbreaking what these girls are all going through. Mm -hmm. The fall of 1991 was a difficult time for Lori. She dropped out of school and began to bounce around friends' homes in Louisville. And that's when she met Melinda. Okay. So you've got two girls now that are in this kind of tumultuous time in their life and don't have a lot of direction. Right. And now have they formed a relationship or just a friendship? Just a friendship. Okay. Because Melinda likes Amanda. Yeah, she's obsessed with Amanda. Lori's father tried to tempt her to come back home to Madison with the lure of a car, and she took him up on his offer. She went back home in December of 1991, and with the freedom of having her own car, she took full advantage of this, spending most of her time 80 kilometers away in New Albany with her new friend Melinda. (laughs) What teenage girl wouldn't come home just to get a car? On January 10, 1992, Melinda and Lori were making plans to attend Sunspring Concert with some of Lori's friends, Tony and Hope. So are you keeping all the friendships straight? I think so. So we have Melinda Mm -hmm. and Lori, and now enter Hope and Tony. Right. So Hope and Tony are Lori's childhood friends, and Lori and Melinda have just formed this kind of new friendship. Okay. So Melinda's meeting Hope and Tony through Lori. That's right. And Melinda's obsessed with Amanda, and Amanda's obsessed with Shanda. You got it. Good recap, Christy. Okay. Are you with me, listeners? You got to keep this straight. (laughs) So let's give you a little bit of background on these other two girls. Tony Lawrence was born on Valentine's Day in 1976. She was the girl that Lori hung out with prior to hanging out with Melinda. The two had bonded over their shared experience with depression and with self-mutilation. Tony had lived in Madison her whole life and as a child had been sexually abused at the age of nine by a relative. What the heck? All these girls being sexually abused. Mm -hmm. After that, she became depressed and tried to kill herself in grade eight. The help she received was not enough and she continued a downward spiral. As a teen, Tony became promiscuous and often fell into the wrong crowds. At the age of 14, she was sexually assaulted a second time, this time by a teenage boy. The boy received a slap on the wrist and was ordered by police to stay away from Tony. And counseling was offered to her, but she didn't follow through on it. She found comfort instead with her friends who also participated in cutting and seemed to understand her pain. So it sounds like they're like trauma bonding. Yep. Tony's good friend Hope was one of these people. Hope Anna Ripley had also been born in Madison on June 9, 1976. She and Tony had been friends since they were little girls. Hope's parents had divorced in 1984, and for a brief time, she had moved to Michigan with her mom for a few years. But in 1987, her parents reconciled, and she moved back to Madison and continued her friendship with Tony and Lori. Hope participated in self-harm, the same as Tony and Lori, but she denied any childhood abuse or trouble in her family as being the reason why she cut. Okay. She had her own reasons, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on January 10, 1992, Lori drove Hope and Tony to Melinda's house the night of the concert. Melinda was still very hurt and worked up over Amanda's betrayal 
and her choosing a 12-year-old over her. Despite Shanda's parents moving her to another school, Amanda still kept in contact with her and showed very little interest in Melinda again. Prior to the girl's arrival, Melinda had called Amanda and told her that she was going to kill Shanda. Amanda, who was with another friend at the time, didn't really think Melinda was being serious. She thought she was just kind of flying off the handle again and being overly dramatic. Talking tough. Mm Mm-hmm. She told Melinda not to kill her because she would end up getting in trouble. (laughs) If you told me you were going to kill somebody, I don't know that my first reaction would be like, you'll get in trouble. As opposed to like, that's messed up. Like, that's wrong. (laughs) But I guess as a teenage girl and you're taking it kind of half jokingly, you can see why she would say that. And I think that's why she said it. She's like, this whole thing is ridiculous because neither Amanda nor the friend who had overheard part of this conversation went to the police or told anybody about the conversation. They just didn't believe that the threat was serious at all. Mm -hmm. When the girls were at Melinda's house preparing to go to the concert, trying on clothes and doing their hair, Melinda raged about Shanda and how she wanted to kill her. The other three girls had never actually met Shanda before, but all were becoming very familiar with Melinda's hate for her. She believed that she was a copycat that had stolen her girlfriend away from her. Well, and it's kind of the mean girl code. If your leader hates somebody, you have to hate them too. Exactly. There was some debate about whether Lori knew prior to getting to Melinda's house that she knew of Melinda's plan to hurt Shanda. Hope and Tony just learned of the plan to scare Shanda when they arrived. Both felt Lori had prior knowledge of what was planned that night. Okay, well, because she's closer to Melinda. Mm -hmm. And Amanda's not here? Nope, Amanda's not there. Okay. They both felt that Lori was pretty eager to participate in this plan. Lori maintains that while she was okay going along with Melinda's plan, that she really didn't have any prior knowledge of it before arriving at Melinda's house that night. Well, and these girls, like your teenage girls, someone's talking smack. You're probably thinking, oh, we're just going to go rough her up or threaten her, scare her, that kind of a thing. Like, did they really know that Melinda was wanting to actually kill her? No, it's talking smack. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, though, when the four girls left Melinda's home that night, they all had a knowledge that Melinda at least wanted to scare Shanda to death. And that there was a real possibility that that scaring might turn into murder. Melinda had been waving around a knife and proclaiming just that. Oh, man. It's so hard to know exactly what they would have been thinking in that situation. Like, I'm trying to think back to when I was a teenager. Like, you wouldn't really think that someone's going to murder someone else. But you can understand the kind of group mentality of, you know, getting involved in all the hype. And wanting to go along, especially when these are four girls that are struggling to fit in and insecure. Oh, for sure. Because even if they're thinking it's joking and they're kind of egging Melinda on, Melinda's thinking they're on board. Mm -hmm. Like, we're doing this. Yep. The four girls drove straight to Shanda's father's house in Jefferson around 8 p.m. that night. It was shortly before dark and the plan was to scare her on the way to the concert. Melinda ordered Hope and Lori to go to the door and ask for Shanda to come out to the car with the ruse of being two of Amanda's friends and that they were going to take her to see Amanda who was waiting at an abandoned hangout. So Amanda actually had nothing to do with this. They're just using Amanda as a way to manipulate Shanda to get her out of the house. Yeah, they're using her as a ruse. Okay. Shanda was at her father's house for the weekend and had just gotten home after hanging out with some other friends. She had been looking to continue the night with a sleepover with her friend Michelle, but her father had kiboshed that idea. They were in the middle of doing some renovations and bed space was at a premium. So even though Shanda still wanted to kind of hang out with friends, her father had said, no, we're calling it a night. 
When Lori and Hope knocked at Shanda's door that night, it was Shanda that opened the door. Because they had never met her, they asked to speak to Shanda, not realizing that that's who was in front of them. Well, you said she didn't look like she was 12. No. They probably thought it was her older sister. Mm Mm-hmm. Once they made introductions, they told Shanda the line about Amanda wanting to see her. With her dad listening from the other room, Shanda told the girls that she wouldn't be able to go out because her parents were still awake. But she did agree to sneak out after midnight if they wanted to come back and get her. And the dad heard this plan. So Shanda's dad said that he had overheard kind of parts of the interaction at the door. He knew that whoever was on the other side of the door, that they didn't know Shanda because she had answered the door and they had asked to see her. But he didn't really hear all of the interaction about her wanting to sneak out after midnight. Okay, he was just hearing bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. He questioned his daughter and he had the impression that she wasn't being totally honest with him about the interaction, but he kind of just let the matter drop. Right. He's like, oh, what was all that about? And she kind of made up a story. But not a huge red flag. No. Yeah, just someone showed up at the door. Yeah. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. When Lori and Hope returned to the car empty-handed, Melinda was ticked off. But Tony and Hope reassured her that they would just return after the concert. At the punk rock concert in Louisville, at the Audubon Skate Park, after a failed attempt to get some liquor with some boys, the girls split up for a short time. Hope and Tony weren't really feeling the dancing scene and went to wait in the car. There, they met two boys that they became very friendly with in the back seat. Oh, man. While hanging out with these boys, they revealed that they and their friends were planning on killing somebody that night. What? How do you just talk about it so nonchalantly like that? Because they're just all hyped up about it. They're excited about it. Oh, my goodness. This, I think, is really important. This shows that they knew what was going to happen this night. Or at least they had a good understanding of there was a good possibility of it happening. Right. And I understand that whole mob mentality, but it's always so shocking that not one of them, deep down in their gut, felt like, this is wrong. Like, we can't do this. Especially they've just met her. They don't even know her. They have no reason other than hearsay to be upset with her. Well, Tony and Hope hadn't even met Melinda before this night. Right. So they have no loyalty to Melinda. No. It is totally bizarre. And that's what I mean by calling them a pack of wild animals. Yeah. Around midnight, the girls were all reunited and headed back to Shanda's house. 
By the time they returned, Shanda's dad had asked Shanda to turn out all the lights and had gone to bed himself. He was unaware of why his daughter was still waiting up. At 12.30, the girls arrived at Shanda's house. Tony refused to go to the door to get Shanda. Melinda was oscillating back and forth with excitement over scaring Shanda or killing her and continued to wave the knife all around. Hope and Lori were not as reserved as Tony and went to retrieve Shanda while Melinda lay in the back seat covered in a blanket, still holding the knife. So she wants to surprise attack her. Mm-hmm. There are some different opinions on if Shanda really intended to leave with the girls that night. Shanda's mom believed that because Shanda's purse and coat were found in the kitchen the next day, that she only intended to go to the end of the driveway where the car was waiting, that she didn't really plan to leave because she didn't take her coat with her. Yeah. The girls say that she made them wait while she changed her clothes and while she was a little reluctant to go down to the car, that she went willingly. Okay. And it's January, you said. So maybe she had just put on like a heavy sweater or something like that if she went to go change. Yeah, I don't know. And who really knows what happened. But everybody agrees that she was a little reluctant to get into the car. And I wonder if she was starting to already sense that something was up. That this wasn't your normal teenage sneaking out of the house outing. Right. So Shanda gets into the car and Hope starts questioning her about her relationship with Amanda. And that's when Melinda springs up from the back seat and starts threatening her to tell her all the details of her sexual relationship by putting a knife to Shanda's throat. Oh my goodness. I keep saying that, but it is. It's oh my goodness this episode. And this continued the whole time they drove out to an abandoned hideout called the Witch's Castle. The 12-year-old started to cry and tried to tell Melinda anything that she wanted to hear, but it wouldn't be of any use that night. How terrifying. The hideout, Witch's Castle, was an abandoned house in Utica, claimed by local folklore to have once been owned by witches that founded the small town. They were apparently burned by local town people who feared them. The place was super spooky, and it had been the site of several reported hauntings and drew enough attention by its reputation that the Paranormal Research and Resource Society investigated the property. Wow. So it was super spooky. Yeah. And was this Lori's idea to go there? Because she's into all of the like witchcraft, occult stuff. Yeah, that's my guess. While none of the claims about witches can be proven, the town's records do actually show that two murders and a suicide took place at that address. Oh, wow. And that's where they took Shanda that night to supposedly meet Amanda. With Lori's beliefs and practices of the occult, it's not a big stretch to assume that the location was chosen to channel a special kind of evil. These girls are a special kind of evil. And that is where the evil would begin that night. The girls dragged Shanda into the haunted castle and bound her arms and legs and taunted her about her looks and threatened to cut off her beautiful hair. They stripped her of her rings and each took one. Hope took off her Mickey Mouse watch and danced around the terrified girl to the tune that the watch played as the others taunted and poked fun of her. Lori taunted her with the folklore of the building, telling her that the place was filled with human remains and that hers would be next, taking a smiley face t-shirt and lighting it on fire and threatening her with the flames. Oh, they're totally torturing her. Mm -hmm. They want to terrify her. With the fire from the shirt blazing and passing headlights visible, the girls actually started to get a little freaked out and they feared that someone might be able to see what they were going to do. So they dragged Shanda back to the car and proceeded on a joyride around town. They got out several times and had to stop at two different gas stations throughout this little joyride to get directions, each time talking to boys when they stopped. 
So witnesses would later come forward and say, yeah, we saw them driving around. We were talking to them at this gas station or they stopped here to ask for directions. Tony even called a friend while at one of the gas stations, but never once mentioned the activities of the evening. While the girls sought out directions and were having conversations with random boys, Melinda kept Shanda hidden in the back seat with a blanket. Probably at knife point. Mm -hmm. And how terrible for her. She is at these gas stations and probably in her mind, she's thinking, should I try to get out? Do I try to fight her? Like, because she was actually somewhere where someone could have helped her. But I wonder if she even understood the extent that these girls were willing to go to. True. And we have to remind ourselves, she's 12. These other girls are 16. She is a baby in comparison. Mm -hmm. I think that the amount of witnesses, too, that the girls left behind really says something about their maturity level. That is true. And at that age, you think you're invincible. Mm -hmm. They're not going to even be thinking about getting caught. No. And because they don't have a specific plan, they're maybe not thinking about covering up their tracks. Like if you're going to rob a bank, you have a very specific plan. This was just, let's pick up Shanda and torture her. And we'll see if we end up killing her or not. Yeah. But I do have a hard time believing with how many times that Melinda talked about killing her, that they didn't have an idea that that's where the night was going to go. Yeah. It's hard to say. But they don't know Melinda. No, they don't. So once back on their way, after getting their directions and no longer lost, they drove Lori's car to the woods near her house. It was an old garbage dump in the middle of a heavily forested area. They dragged Shanda from the car and stripped her down to her underwear, and Melinda started to beat her, repeatedly punching her and slamming her knee into Shanda's face. Shanda had just received braces, and they broke through her skin, causing blood to pour from her mouth. Oh, man. I can feel that pain. Yeah. Did you ever have braces? Yes. Yeah. Even just, like, getting hit a little bit in your mouth by accident? let alone repeatedly, that is painful. Mm -hmm. Upon seeing the blood, Melinda became even more enraged and grabbed Shanda's head, pulling it back, drawing the knife across her throat. But the knife was not sharp enough and it didn't do enough damage to kill her. But it did slice her. Mm -hmm. Hope then held Shanda down while Melinda and Lori repeatedly stabbed Shanda. They stabbed her in her chest, her legs, and the bottoms of her feet. (gasps) Knowing that the knife was dull, none of these stab wounds were meant to be fatal blows, just ones that would inflict pain. What a bunch of dirtbags! Yeah, like the bottoms of her feet, they're just trying to inflict pain. But honestly, the second they saw Melinda try to slit her throat, that's not an alarm bell for you? Mm -hmm. You're instead going to hold her down and help stab her? It's so bizarre to me that none of them spoke up and were like, uh, this has gone too far. Right. Or even when they're talking to those boys at the gas station saying something like, hey, this is what I think might happen and I'm not really sure what to do about it. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. They just kept going along. The girls then strangled Shanda with a rope, wrapping it around her neck and pulling it until she was unconscious. Believing Shanda to be dead, they shoved her body in the trunk of the car and returned back to Lori's house to go get cleaned up. While enjoying a soda, they realized that Shanda was still alive. They were alerted by the dog who started barking crazily because he was able to hear Shanda trying to escape from the trunk. Even the dog knew that something horribly wrong was going on and was going crazy about it. And how could they just be like so nonchalantly, so relaxed, drinking a pop while they know that this girl is in their trunk? Oh, they were having a good old time talking about all the torture that they had just inflicted on her. Yeah, they were probably bragging like, oh, did you see when I did this? Mm -hmm. And like... Melissa, this is a bad one. Yeah. Lori went out and opened the trunk, 
and stab Shanda several more times to get her to be quiet. And that's Lori. That's not even Melinda. Yeah. Well, Lori's the one that thinks she's going to kill somebody. Then, like nothing happened, she goes back into the house, cleans up again, and starts using her rune stones to tell the girls their future. And I wonder if she said anything about prison. (laughs) I can read your future. You're going down. Yeah. At 2.30 a.m., Melinda and Lori were still all wired up, and they decided that they wanted to go country cruising. While they were out driving around the nearby town of Canaan, Tony and Hope stayed behind at Lori's house. Tony and Hope stayed at that house for four hours with Lori's parents and never said anything about their friends leaving with a 12-year-old girl tied up in the trunk. Later, the girls would claim that they were just now so fearful of getting into trouble that they couldn't tell anybody. Lori's dad at one point even came into Lori's room and asked where Lori was and what was going on, but they didn't fess up to anything. They were more fearful for themselves instead than for the little girl that was in the trunk. Instead of helping, they just went to sleep. That's so disturbing. Just no regard for Shanda's life at all. No. All the girls had hours while the torture continued to think about what they were doing. This wasn't an enraged attack that happened suddenly. It wasn't over before anybody could realize what was happening. They all had ample opportunity to think about their actions and make a different choice. Yes, that is totally what our friend and fellow podcaster Kim Toller says. There's a million other choices. And they could have made any of them. Yeah. And they all made the dirtbag one. While on their joyride, Melinda and Lori became aware that there were still noises coming from the trunk. They stopped the car and opened the trunk, peering down on their victim. Shanda was covered in blood and fighting to remain conscious. With the power and will to live so strong that it's hard to describe, this young girl sat up but was unable to speak because of the beatings that she had taken. Lori meets Shanda's determination to live with a tire iron. She beat her head repeatedly, and when that wasn't enough, these sick teenage dirtbags, Melinda and Lori, sodomized Shanda with the same tire iron. What? I almost have no words. Just thinking about how Shanda spent her last day on earth. This is going over hours, you said. Mm -hmm. And just even the pain from all of those injuries and the fear. I can't even imagine what was going through her mind. No, she just wanted to live. This torture would continue for hours, with the girls driving around for a bit and then stopping every once in a while to inflict more pain. And Melinda had been sodomized herself. She knew exactly what she was inflicting Mm -hmm. on Shanda. Yeah, which just makes it that much more worse. She knew the pain. When Melinda and Lori returned to their house just before daybreak, they cleaned up yet again. They filled Tony and Hope in on the things that they had done, all the while laughing about it. Despite their laughter, though, all the girls were becoming a little nervous about Shanda's will to live. They feel committed to ending her life now because none of them want to get in trouble. Hope comes up with the idea that the best way to cover up the night's activities is to burn Shanda's body. Their laughing and planning are boisterous enough to wake up Lori's mother, who is irate that her daughter has been out so late and has friends over. She orders Lori to take them home, and Lori is quick to agree. They all pile back into their car and head out to a gas station to finalize their plans. And meanwhile, Shanda is still in the trunk of the car. Mm -hmm. At the gas station near Madison High School, the girls purchase a two-liter bottle of pop and pour it out. They put gas in the bottle and in the car. Oh, no. 
Well, at that same gas station, they actually had to move the car further away from people because they can still hear Shanda moaning in the trunk. So she's still alive. They know that they can make a different choice still at this point. What a fighter. Instead, they choose to carry out their diabolical plan. The girls drive out to a spot that is known by Hope, a small area north of Madison on Lemon Road. There is a small opening that is surrounded by a wooded area. They open the trunk and view Shanda's broken body. Hope takes a Windex bottle and sprays the chemical all over Shanda's wounds and taunts her. You're not so hot now. Hope and Lori then wrap Shanda in a blanket and lift her out of the trunk. Lori yells at Hope and Melinda to pour the gasoline over Shanda's body as she lays on the cold, hard ground. While gasoline is covering her body, Shanda is calling out for her mummy. Lori ignores all of this and strikes a match, setting the 12-year-old on fire. When the fire dies down a little bit, Melinda returns again and doses it a second time with the rest of the fuel because she's fearful that Shanda is not yet dead. So they literally burned her alive. Mm-hmm. And that's confirmed on autopsy reports later that she was still alive. Oh, Melissa, that is such a next level amount of evil. It is amazing what dirtbags can do when they get together. Well, and even just like when you were talking about how when they opened the trunk and saw her, I was shocked to hear that Hope, who's never even met this poor girl, decides instead of being taken aback by her horrific appearance, what she would have looked like at that point in time, she thinks, oh, I'm going to make her hurt even more and spray Windex in her wounds. Yeah, no point to that at all. No. And then how heartbreaking that she's crying out for her mom. Yeah, it's just so awful. So what do four heartless teenagers do the morning after a night of vicious torture and murder? They probably go out and party. They went out at 9.30 to McDonald's and laughed about how Shanda's charred remains looked like the sausages that they were eating. No. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. Nope. Like, I know these girls have been put through the ringer themselves. What has happened to them was not their fault, but that does not excuse what they are doing right now. Not even a little bit. From the first steps of planning to the morning after, these four teenagers treated their night out like it was a fun night out on the town. Exactly. I think it speaks to what happens with a group mentality. Yeah. Would one of those girls have done that on their own? I doubt it. Half of them didn't even know who Shanda was before that night. Well, for Tony, her cruelty was starting to crack at this time. In the light of day, she was starting to recognize what they had done. She uses a payphone to call a friend to talk about the things that have just happened and quickly becomes hysterical. The girls decide that Tony needs to go home to rest and Lori drives her and Hope home to their houses. Melinda, too, is motivated to tell someone about the murder. She can't wait to tell Amanda. But hers is more probably to brag, not to be panicked about. That's right. Melinda actually has Amanda paged over a mall's intercom because she's out shopping and she just wants to tell her so bad about what she's done to Shanda that she has her paged over the mall intercom. She's out to lunch. What is she thinking Amanda's reaction is going to be? I don't know. Like, oh, now I'm in love with you again. That's right. Because you viciously tortured and murdered a girl that I care about. Yeah. Amanda actually agrees to meet up with them with another friend and they drive back to Melinda's house. Once back at her home, Melinda breaks down and starts to sob about what they have done, telling Amanda and the other girl about the murder that they have just committed. Do you think she's genuine and feeling bad? I'm calling baloney. Yeah, I don't know. At the same time I want to call baloney, I think, how could you not start to feel some remorse? Yeah, it has to hit you at some point in time. Yeah. But right now, how I'm feeling... I hope this haunts them every single day for the rest of their life. I hope they see that picture in their minds of what they did to Shanda. 
those are exactly Shanda's mom's sentiments at the sentencing hearings. Well, I am with you, Shanda's mom, because this is just so despicable. Mm -hmm. To get the friend and Amanda to believe this story that they are telling them is true, Lori and Melinda actually show off Lori's car. It's covered with Shanda's blood, complete with her bloody handprints, long curly dark hair, and one forlorn bloodied sock. Amanda is horrified, but she also does promise not to tell anybody about it. She might have been scared of what they would do to her, but she doesn't keep it a secret, does she? She does until police question her. Really? Mm -hmm. While the four teenage girls are coming to terms with the things that they have just done, Stephen Schur discovers that his baby girl is not at home. Oh. Jackie arrives at his house, and when their search for their daughter turns up nothing, they head straight to Clark County Sheriff's Department to file a missing persons report at 1.45 p.m. Well, and like you said, her purse and her jacket were in the house. And this is January. She wouldn't have went anywhere, especially as a teenager, without her jacket and her purse. Mm -hmm. And it would be so difficult to have your child gone and not know where they are at. No, to wake up in the morning and they've just vanished. Mm -hmm. Because then you don't even know what to go from. Like, it's not like, oh, they were at the mall and went missing. No, there would be no leads, right? You went to bed thinking that she was in your home all safe. Exactly. As they're filing the missing persons report, other detectives from Jefferson County Sheriff's Office are investigating a possible homicide. Around 10.45 that morning on January 11th, two brothers were out hunting birds when they came across Shanda's small burnt body. Oh no. It was drawn up in a pugilistic posture. The heat from the fire had caused her muscles to stiffen and shorten, causing all of her joints to flex into a fetal position. She was so badly burned that her dental records had to be used to identify her. When police investigated the scene, they found numerous footprints, tire tracks, and a melted two-liter bottle of pop. Well, I was just thinking that they used two liters of gasoline on her. Mm -hmm. The coroner's report revealed, just like you said, that Shanda's death had been caused by smoke inhalation. Most disturbingly, she was alive when she burned to death. The coroner believed that despite her extensive injuries, which probably would have necessitated a colostomy for some time, that Shanda would have survived them. Shanda's mother demanded to know all of the details of this coroner's report. And I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to want to know all the details about my child's last moments. I'd have to know. You'd have to know. It would kill me not to. It would kill me to know them, but I'd have to. Mm. I know that I would. That's just my personality. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to know. It's so sad. I would want to know. I would feel like me not knowing would almost be like, and I know this makes no sense, but in my brain, I would feel like then they were really alone in it. Mm. nobody knew and so by me knowing exactly what happened at least I would feel like I know what happened Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm articulating that very well but I get what you mean yeah I would think that my purpose in knowing would be to prove to myself that it wasn't anything like I could imagine so much worse and I don't think I could imagine worse than this not in this case no and sometimes I do think that that our brains come up with worse scenarios but I don't think you could in this one it's so awful What else could they have done that was worse than what they already did? Yeah. Because of the gruesome nature of this crime, police initially thought that it had been a drug deal gone wrong or a crime committed by seasoned out-of-town criminals. It wasn't the kind of thing that happened in their area, where most of their small towns were likened to the idealistic town of Mayberry on the iconic Andy Griffith show. But that theory didn't last long. The truth was nothing that any of the officers or townspeople were prepared to hear. No one would believe that such a horrific crime could have been carried out by four teenage girls. No, you would think it was a professional hit almost. Mm -hmm. 
in their inaptness of using a dull knife, they actually made it look more like it was a professional trying to torture somebody. Yeah, I would have been so shocked to find out that this was children who had done this to another child. Yeah. At 8.20 p.m., Tony was brought into the Jefferson County Police by her parents. She had told them about the murder, and now she tearfully, almost hysterically, told the police her story. When Tony was at the police station, another boy was also there saying that he had overheard a conversation about a murder at a bowling alley that day. It didn't take long for the police to kind of connect all of these dots. So Tony went in willingly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one good thing, I guess. It's hard to find anything redeeming for any of these girls, but I'm glad that Tony did go in. I can't help but think, though, it's a little too late for that, isn't it? Oh, it is a little bit too late, but at least it will help police have answers and will connect the other girls as well. Mm -hmm. But they had been talking so much about it that now people were coming in and saying, hey, I heard this. Yeah, I can't even imagine as a teenager hearing someone joke about this and you're going to think it's a joke. Mm -hmm. And then actually finding out in the news that this girl was tortured and killed in that way. Yeah. Early on the morning of January 13th, around 2.30 a.m., Lori, 17, and Melinda, 16, were both arrested for the murder of Shanda. Tony and Hope, both 15 at the time, were arrested for their part in the murder as well. The mug shots for Hope and Melinda show them smiling as if it's all part of a big game. What? Mm -hmm. They're obviously thinking they're going to get off because they're kids. Yeah. I don't know what they were thinking. Hope tries to explain it later, saying that the officers were trying to put them at ease, and that's why they were able to smile after just being arrested for murder. But that's hard to believe. No, it's because you have no soul. All four girls were tried as adults, and all made plea bargains with the charges that were filed against them. All brought up their histories of physical and sexual abuse, or their history of self-harm as mitigating factors. Tony was sentenced on January 28, 1993. She pled guilty to confinement, resulting in serious bodily injury. She apologized during the sentencing and was told to rot in hell by Shanda's mother. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison, the maximum sentence at the time for the charges that she pled guilty to. She was eligible for parole after 10 years of time served. Her punishment was the least severe, likely due to her limited involvement and being the one to first confess. Okay... Tony was released on December 14th in 2000 at her first parole hearing. She remained on parole until December 2002. She has since changed her name and tries to keep a low profile, but is believed to still be living in the Madison area working for a trucking company. She now has children of her own. What? Mm -hmm. She only had two years of parole? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't the parole go till the end of the sentence? Like till the end of the 20 years? You would think so, but it doesn't. Wow. As for Hope... She was sentenced on June 1st, 1993, to 60 years in prison, but 10 years of that was suspended for mitigating factors. And I thought for Hope, what were her mitigating factors? Yeah. Hope was right in the thick of it. Yeah. Hope was ordered to be placed on probation for 10 years after she was released. So really, her jail time sentence was 40 years. Hope appealed her sentence many times and eventually got it reduced to 35 years. Oh, for most of her time in Indiana Women's State Prison, Hope was a model prisoner and was granted a day off her sentence for every day that she behaved under the Indiana Department of Corrections good time provision. All of the girls would take advantage of this provision. So they could literally cut their time in half. Mm -hmm. Hope was also awarded another four years off of her sentence for obtaining her GED and her bachelor's degree from Ball State University. 
On April 28, 2006, Hope Ripley was released from Indiana Women's Prison on parole after serving 14 years of her original 60-year sentence. 14 out of 60? Mm -hmm. She remained on supervised parole for five years until April 2011. Hope feels that she has fulfilled her sentence for rehabilitation and that no matter if she was in prison or out, her punishment continues. In an interview with the Dr. Phil show, she states that she is still not sure if she would do anything differently than she did that night. What? Because the peer pressure was so intense and she still can't understand or explain why she went along with everything. That is very brazen. Yeah. Prior to her release, she never apologized. She said she never thought it was something that she could do because it wouldn't make a difference. She thought that it would be a shallow offering, so she never even bothered to try. But a shallow offering is better than no offering. Mm -hmm. Shanda's mother was most upset about Hope's continued appeals to try and get out early and felt that it was an indication that Hope was not taking responsibility for what she did. She felt that the only thing that any of these girls could do was to accept their full punishments. They would never be able to make up for their crimes. And so she just wanted them to live out their sentences in jail and not try to get off any time. Right. If you're really sorry, do the time. That's right. Hope claims that she will do everything in her power to stop what happened that night from ever happening again and would always try to make it better except complete her full sentence. She considers herself reformed. She is now married and living in Indiana still. Lori pleaded guilty to murder, arson, and criminal confinement, resulting in serious bodily injury. Because Lori's the one who actually lit the match. Yep. Okay. And she's the one who was like the vampire drinking blood and was saying that she was going to kill someone one day. Yeah. She felt she had always known that she would go to jail for murder one day. During her sentence, a psychologist testified that she was incapable of empathy due to the abuse that she had suffered as a child. And she continued to suffer from chronic depression, substance abuse, gender disorder, and personality disorder. They testified that Lori lacked personality and had no conscience. She was sentenced to 60 years in Indiana's women's prison in Indianapolis. She never made any appeals to her sentencing. Oh, okay. During her time in jail, Lori was asked why she thought people killed. She answered, quote, My opinion is, is that they do it to feel superior or high on the victim's fear. They are thirsty for the spill of blood. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. That really is. Because I'm thinking I cannot relate to any of those words that just came out of your mouth. Lori was released on January 11th, 2018 from Rockville Correctional Facility, even though her earliest possible release date shows September 5th, 2019. It was the 26th anniversary of Shanda's death. That she got released? Mm -hmm. For Shanda's mom, she felt Lori was the only one to accept full responsibility because she never fought her sentencing. So she did get out early, but it was because of this provision that was just automatically granted for good behavior. Right. She keeps a low profile and is believed to still be in the state of Indiana. And she's made later statements claiming that the torture never should have happened, but she too had succumbed to peer pressure. She says she regrets her actions and is sorry for the pain that she caused and that she feels she will never be free of the guilt that she feels. And I honestly can't even imagine. Like, this is so horrific what these girls did. But I can't imagine right now in my life to still be feeling guilt and being terrorized about what I did when I was 16. Right. I mean, we all make 
really stupid mistakes when we're teenagers, right? We do. And this is a lasting one that they have to forever deal with. Right. But most of us at 16, you give into peer pressure. You're like egging someone's house. Mm -hmm. You're not murdering another child. Yeah. Melinda was charged with nine felonies and pled guilty to three, murder, arson, and criminal confinement on October 6, 1992. She was sentenced to 60 years in prison as well. She appealed her sentence on the ground that she was, quote, profoundly retarded by the child abuse that she had suffered, and that she had entered her plea bargain without the consent or consultation of her parents. In 2008, her appeals were all denied. During her time in jail, she too completed her schooling and began to work with a program called Project to Heal, which trains dogs for disabled children. She was featured in a documentary called Charlie's Scars. In order to participate in this program, the directors would only allow her to participate and train dogs if Shanda's family agreed to the arrangement. Really? Mm -hmm. That was at least respectful to ask. Yeah, I thought so too. And so they gave permission. Yeah. Shanda's mother, being a bigger person than I think that I could be in her situation, actually donated a dog named Angel in Shanda's name for Melinda to specifically train. Wow. That's big, hey? That is really big. Yeah. But I think, too, as a mom, maybe it was a way of, I want you to think about my daughter every single day. Like, you're training this dog. I want you to remember Shanda. Yeah. Melinda later said that Shanda's mom being okay with her participating in the program Project to Heal and donating that dog did more for her in terms of her own healing than all of the therapy sessions that she had attended since the murder and any learning that she had completed while earning her psychology degree. Wow. Well, it was one act of kindness Mm -hmm. that wasn't earned. Not at all. And that's what true kindness is. It's not about who deserves kindness. Kindness is just kindness. It is. There were some that criticized Shanna's mom's decision to donate a dog for Melinda to train. In response, she said, quote, it's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. That's so remarkable. Mm -hmm. Melinda was the last of the girls to be released from prison on September 5th, 2019. After more than 26 years in jail, she is now serving her parole in Jefferson County. She continues to train dogs for the same program. Wow. And that is the disturbing case of four teenage dirtbags that fell to peer pressure, letting their emotions run wild and unchecked and became savage beasts. Whoa. You just summed that up perfectly. Oh my goodness. It's just crazy how so much hatred can come from all their pain being projected onto Shanda and that peer pressure and then not being able to back down. Yeah, that's what's so shocking to me. Because like you said, this wasn't just a flip of the switch accident. We didn't really mean to kill her. They tortured and tortured and inflicted as much pain and suffering as they could and tried to kill her so many different times. Mm-hmm. From the first time they realized she was in the trunk still alive, just running out there. Oh, hang on a sec, guys. Run out. Stab, stab, stab. Come back in and carry on with your night. Yeah, it seems so cruel. And that's why I include what happened to them after is because if you were just to take that snapshot of their lives, you would never think that anything more could become of those little dirtbags. Right. Well, I think our real superhero of this case is Shanda's mom. Yeah, I think that too. Well, she started out justifiably angry. She was furious. And I think most of us would feel like that at that point in time. And I think it is a healing process. If she was asked early on in the sentencing if she would give Melinda a dog, she probably wouldn't. 
but she was able to process and heal and come to terms with seeing them more as people rather than just the dirtbag predators who ended her daughter's life. Yeah. And I think through that kindness, then hopefully these girls will go on to be able to do something with their lives that will somehow honor Shanda's life that they took. Right. Yeah, the real test is now. Because unfortunately, we've seen many times people get released and then reoffend. Hopefully, they've matured, they've dealt with the things that they have done, and can be better people afterwards. Yeah, it does speak a lot to what a little bit of kindness can do. Kindness goes a long way. And kindness heals. So listeners, as Christmas is approaching, be kind to one another. Spread that Christmas cheer. Buy someone some deep fried pickles. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. (laughs) And we'll be back in another week. Until then. See ya. Bye. I'm saying this. I have no problem telling you. It's because we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> Break my heart, Melissa. Okay. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> and that, and for her mudgers, it says the word. I don't know why I'm struggling so much today. Oh, sorry. I hiccuped. <laughs> <laughs> At first, I thought you were just responding to that. Like, oh, no, that was a hiccup. <laughs> the whole house had to be exercised, not exercised. Yeah, is it? What would it be? I think it's yeah, an exorcism. <laughs> but you went to like four more. Come on, keep it up. Three more. But how would you pronounce it any differently? Is it I, exercise? I, I thought so. Yeah, okay. Took me. <laughs> I told you, my brain is jumping everywhere today. Okay. We need to crack into the chocolate, I think. <laughs> last week's episode that aired then i would like totally envision some guy trying to hide a cow under his coat i know and now i'm picturing the house exercising jumping up and down <laughs> okay my mind went in the gutter <laughs> that's why i was thinking about the picture from this morning that i sent you oh that was so great i thought it was funny i'm stupid nope i cry when i do mine too sometimes <laughs> we'll get through it yeah. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah? Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.